Hi, I'm Jared Fuller. Welcome to Scratching the Surface. What is design's relationship to power? How can designers respond to these entrenched power structures that surround us every day and challenge them, critique them, subvert them, or interrupt them? There are a variety of ways to respond to and engage with these questions, and thankfully, designers today are increasingly looking for ways to interrogate this relationship, whether that be post-capitalist design or anti-racist design or decolonizing design. For Alice in Place, these are feminist questions. Feminist design, she writes, is not only about what designers do and who does it, it is about how we do design and why. Her new book, Feminist Designer, on the personal and political in design, is a really wonderful, wide-ranging collection of essays, of interviews, and of case studies that explore the intersection of design and feminism and makes the case that all designers should be feminists. I'm excited to have Ali on the show today to talk about the book and the ideas in it and make the case that designers maybe should be less focused on problem solving and more as troublemakers. Ali is a designer, a researcher, and an educator at the University of Arkansas, where she directs the graphic design program. She has a background in graphic design and journalism and got an MFA in experience design. In this conversation, we use the book to talk about the shifting roles of design and its relationship to power. We talk about rethinking critique and what designers can take from feminist theory. Feminist Designer was one of my favorite books of 2023, and I hope this conversation can be a great intro to the ideas that Allison presents in it, and I really encourage you to pick up the book and spend some time with it. If you like this episode and what we do here at Scratching the Surface, I hope you consider supporting us on Patreon. Patreon supporters get bonus interviews, full transcripts of every episode, and an exclusive monthly newsletter. All of this helps keep the show free for everyone all the time. You can head over to patreon.com slash surface podcast to sign up. Thank you as always for listening. And here is my conversation with Allison Place. You have this new book that just came out that you edited. It's called Feminist Designer on the Personal and the Political in Design. And you write in the introduction to that, feminist design is not only what designers do or who does it, it is about how we do design and why. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me what feminist design is in your view or, or sort of lay out this thesis that you're you're presenting to us? Yeah, um, that's... a great way to start this conversation. <laughs> what the heck are we talking about? <laughs> yeah, what is this? What is the title of your book? Um, so, well, the short answer to the question of what is feminist design is that there is no definition. I don't necessarily define it in the book. Yeah. Um, sorry for, you know, we're going to we're going to get around to it though, but um, to me, feminist design is more of a mindset or a way of knowing, it's a way of doing, it's a way of thinking and seeing. Mm -hmm. rather than a distinct discipline that you can draw boundaries around. And mm -hmm. I think that lack of boundaries is actually the point. Um, because another point that I make in the introduction is that um, to create a sort of instruction manual for feminist design would be to create another hegemonic system, which is the opposite of the point of feminism. The whole point of feminism is to question power, to reject norms, to imagine things otherwise. And that looks really different in different contexts. So the proposition of the book is just, you know, to um, implore readers to, you know, one, consider context and um, gain some new lenses for ways of seeing design, ways of, ways of mm. seeing what's happening around them, um, of understanding 
power of understanding structures, um, the context within the, which they operate, um, but also suggestions and examples of ways that they can imagine things otherwise. Um, so it does not re represent a defined recipe for what everyone should be doing. Um, in fact, I think a lot of the contributors in the book grapple with that tension they feel of, you know, am I doing feminist design? What is this? Do I even call myself a feminist? Um, mm -hmm. And that's that's part of feminism. That's part of doing feminism in design is, um, you know, understanding its limitations, but not limiting ourselves within it. Yeah, you know, it's... Uh... It's interesting to me because I because you also talk about that with just the word f feminism and and to you know to be a feminist that, that there are different definitions for this and different people have mm -hmm. you know sort of different interpretations about what that means and I think that sort of grappling in your book comes through in a really generative way and I'm I'm wondering I hope this question doesn't sound like a critique um, you know we're sort of in a in a really interesting moment i think where a lot of designers are thinking about their relationship to power mm -hmm. um and how design contributes to that i think your book does that really really well there's books on decolonizing design that have come out in the last year there's books on sort of designing capitalism that have come mm -hmm. out in the last couple of years and i'm wondering how do how do you see your book and the the writing that you collected and this idea of feminist design sort of in dialogue with those and also maybe where it's distinct or what you know what maybe makes feminist feminist design distinct from decolonizing design or you know mm -hmm. post-capitalist design or something could you just sort of like map out sort of how you see these maybe relating to each other yeah I mean it's such a great question because there is it's so easy to conflate these terms and to lump them together mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. um, they kind of end up seeming like this just big word puzzle of socially conscious terms. <laughs> right, yeah. Um, but yeah, I think they are extremely distinct. And I actually was very deliberate in this book of, um, of maybe bumping up against, but not leading into right. Right. the other areas of, you know, socially conscious design that, that we're seeing. So um, I'm pretty sure the word decolonization appears in the book, but it is absolutely not about decolonization and the word capitalism absolutely appears in the mm -hmm. book because feminism is inherently anti-capitalist, but it is not a book about capitalism. Um, same thing about like anti-racist design. Like there, mm -hmm. these yeah. are distinct ways of seeing um, how power works and ways of understanding how design operates within structures of power. So um, I really wanted to focus very clearly on feminist theory. Um, and that's why each chapter here, um, and each um, section of contributions um, is very, very, um, there's a deep dive into feminist theory and feminist history with each one. Um, and I made a point not to, you know, try to explain, like, why is feminism not decolonization? Um, because I'm not a, I'm not a scholar of decolonization, and it's not my place to, um, you know, to explain that to someone um, but I absolutely share resources. Um, there's a section at the end of the book, which I wanted to be at the beginning of the book, but my editor <laughs> didn't want it. So it's at the very end of the book, but it's a very long list of um, like further reading. Um, and it definitely suggests things about like, um, you know, where to go if you want to learn more about anti-capitalist or like post-capitalist theories um, or decolonization and things like that. So feminism is very much... Um, a way of seeing and a way of doing that intersects with all of those other um, disciplines, I'll say. Um, but it is very, I think it is very specific. And when you dive deep into the theory of it and the history of it, um, you can start to see like how those things can interact and how they can actually benefit each other, but how they are about different things. One of the things, I, I mean, yes, I think all of these things do overlap, like you said, and so I don't mean, I, I hope this doesn't sound like I'm putting sort of boundaries around them or, or, or separating them something, but one thing that I think is really comes through as something that feels sort of explicitly feminist that you write about in the book and that comes up in, in many of the essays is that part of this is sort of redefining what we mean by design and redefining who gets to call themselves a designer. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about that a little bit and, and sort of how feminist theory might 
redefine this idea of design and open up who qualifies as a designer and who doesn't? Yeah, there are, there are a couple of pieces in the book that really grapple with that, I think, in a beautiful way. Um, there's an essay by Claudia Marina, who's a, a design historian theorist, and um, she teaches interior design. Um, and she has an essay entitled, um, Who Gets to Call Themselves a Designer? Um, but also some other, I think, dialogues in the book really bring this forth in different ways. Um, this question of um, what do designers do? And mm-hmm. um, it's sometimes it's about questioning what we have been doing. And sometimes it's about revealing what we have not been doing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I can think of several examples in the book. Um there's a really beautiful dialogue in the book with uh, Jen Roberts, who cool. is um, a person who does many things, um, not just design. She talks about designers expanding their capacity for oh. working with other people and um, understanding what their roles can be in a community. Mm. Um, and it, you know, it builds on a lot of, I think, discussion we've had recently in design about um, what is the role of the designer, meaning. Um, designer as author, designer as facilitator, designer Uh as um, X. So I think raising those questions is really important. Um, And the reason it's important is because it's about relationships. Um, What is the designer's relationship to other people um, with whom they are designing, for whom they are designing, and how we frame those relationships? Um, And the reason I wanted there to be so many examples in the book is because I think there's so many ways to do that and to approach that. I I have I want to get into some of the specifics in a second um, a little bit more, but I have one more sort of general question <laughs> around yeah. around uh, ideas of feminist design that I'm I'm curious if you can talk about because um, you write on the first page and I'm going to read back to you um, uh, you know the first page of your introduction you say we tend to overestimate how much of design's negative impact is due to individual designers' implicit bias while overlooking how deeply entangled it is in complex power structures and deeply rooted systems of oppression. And your book is called Feminist Designer, Mm -hmm. uh, not Feminist Design, and then on the personal and the political in Mm -hmm. design. Can you talk a little bit about that sort of intersection between designer and design and personal and political and individual bias and complex (laughs) systems Mm -hmm. of oppression. How do those, how do you sort of think about um, how those are in dialogue or relate to each other or influence each other? Yeah, this is a question I get a lot and I, I think it's a great question though. Um, And I actually intentionally did not answer this question within the pages of the book um, because I, I hoped that people would infer something about it. But um, to me, this book is not about, um, it's not about design, it's about people. And um, that's why there are so many people in the book. That's why um, each person, including myself, writes from a first person perspective. Um, Mm. The reason the book is called Feminist Designer is because um, doing feminist design is about the embodied experience of being a feminist designer or a a designer who does feminism. Um, And embodiment is a very crucial component of feminist theory. It undergirds a lot of feminist works like um, Bell Hooks writing about the mind-body connection or Donna Haraway writing about subjectivity and situated knowledge. And designers typically do not do embodiment very well. We are, Mm. we are taught (laughs) to be neutral agents. We are taught to be, passive observers. Um, We are often taught to forget that we even have a body and to just focus on the work. Um, But that really obfuscates the way in which we are actually critical actors and we have a real impact. Um, So the idea of being a feminist designer is to bring our focus back to our situated knowledge um, back to our positionality, our con- like our position within structures that are social and um, related to power and things like that. Um, if we bring our focus back to our own situated knowledge and our role, we can be empowered to design from there. That's not a bad thing. And it's not about, you know, centering ourselves because I think that's a really different thing right. um, to center our experiences or to center 
um, our knowledge specifically as designers, um, it's about being aware of what is shaping our view and, you know, finding ways to mm -hmm. design for and with people that are uh, respectful and equitable um, by, you know, standing firmly rooted in our situated knowledge um, in order to see what we see and don't see. I, I think that's really, really well said. I think one of the things I found really fascinating in the book, you write that feminism can be understood as a world making project. And I think world making, world building, those are sort of buzzwords in design mm -hmm. <laughs> sometimes also. Yeah. But you're really, you're, you're really pointed in this, I think. And you say that world making, you sort of set this as, as the opposite of solutioning, you know, or problem solving mm. in the way that design is typically seen. And, and you talk about how world making or world building, um, sort of recognizes this complexity uh, and, and, and these sort of biases that you're talking about. And this, I mean, this goes back to what you said right at the beginning about, uh, you know, you didn't want to create a framework because that would do the opposite of what <laughs> feminism is. Yeah. Um, I, I heard, <laughs> right. I was going to say, you, I heard you give a talk that where you said the revolution will not be toolkits, which is sort of the <laughs> impulse of the designer. Um, can you talk about this idea of world making and, and how to think about world making not as problem solving or as solutioning as you call it? That's such a good question. And I, I hope it's the question that everyone has, you know, reading the book because um, solutioning, uh, I write a lot about this in, um, in the chapter about liberation. Um, solutioning is this impulse of designers that is hyper-focused on um, a singular moment or a singular context or a singular audience um, and a singular point in time. Um, and it's so out of tune with, um, you know, the, the context around it, the historical context or the social context. And um, it is, is an, an approach that's very blind to um, what's really going on. And uh, it's also an approach that really um, gives the designer this excuse to kind of just drop in and drop out really quickly um, which I think we've all done. Mm -hmm. We've all mm -hmm. been a part of a project that was like that. Um, and maybe you felt kind of icky about it, or maybe you didn't realize <laughs> that other people felt kind of icky about it. But um, I think the concept of design as world making um, brings our focus back to that bigger picture, um, you know, back to thinking about the political, not just the personal, um, but it's the idea of um, you know, a long-term investment, a long-term relationship. Um, and I, this is mm -hmm. this is expounded upon in many of the essays and case studies in the book, um, in the liberation chapter, but also in the community chapter, um, this idea of uh, design as relationship building, design as community building, right. um, and how that plays out in a way that benefits people <laughs> you know to be to be frank um as yeah. opposed to harming people um and i think it's as you said it's it's not always about an individual person or an individual uh, moment of bias um it's very much about these structural ways that we have about going about things whether it's um you know the nature of institutions or um the relationship of power between different entities and just things like that. And that context is so critical to understanding what our individual impact actually is as a designer. Mm. I want to go back to that line that I heard you give in a talk and you sort of reference it in the book too, that this, this idea that the revolution will not be toolkits. And you just, you know, you made a joke about toolkits. You said this book was intentionally not a framework for thinking about feminist design. And I'm wondering if I, I, I'm struggling to sort of articulate in, in this into a question, but I wonder if you could sort of talk about the toolkit as a metaphor for sort of that, the, the limits of thinking about design that way. Is that impulse, does that come from this desire to, you know, sort of like immediately solve a problem and get out? And how do we, maybe, maybe the question I'm asking is like, how do we think beyond toolkits? Mm -hmm. uh, what is the limit of those? Because that is such a, the default position and how do we start to sort of think about um, the role of the designer beyond just, you know, those sort of immediate responses. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it, 
I stand by my critique, but I also want to say that I don't, I don't mean to imply that no one has ever made a toolkit that's useful. <laughs> like there, are, there, there's a time and a place for a toolkit. Um, but I do think it is a limiting approach and it's something that, you know, we see a little too often. Um, uh, we see a toolkit in place of something that should instead be like, you know, critical thinking about mm-hmm, broader structures mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. um, institutions and power and things like that. But, um, I think we can use the toolkit as a metaphor. Um, you know, you could look at the book as a metaphor for a toolkit. Um, if you consider someone else ex- else's experience, um, mm. you know, to be a, a, a tool in your box, because, mm. um, you know, when, when people ask me like for specific advice of like, um, how do I do feminist design here or there or this way? Um, and I, I always try to steer their, attention away from what they're doing and into, um, you know, the relationships that they have in the, in that situation, or whether it's a, um, uh, at yeah. work or in school or with people they're designing with or for. Um, I think a lot about this quote that's in, I think the last chapter, um, a quote from Silas Monroe that he gave in a talk. And he said, basically, I'm paraphrasing, um, lately I've been focused more on being a better person, not on being <laughs> a better designer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think that, there, I mean, we can go a long way with just that alone. Um, just this idea of what kind of person are we? What kind of relationships do we have with people? Um, and I think that that's, that to me, that's the opposite of the toolkit um, is being mm. in tune with, um, those, those broader contexts, um, within our, within our lives, within our, um, our workplaces, within our, uh, classrooms, whatever it is. Another way to sort of like respond to that is something, my, my favorite sentence that you write in the book is in the plurality section, the, the intro to the plurality section. Um, and I've thought about this so much since I read the book, and I I I love I love this line. So um, I just want to hear you sort of talk about it more. You say the task of the designer is to respond to trouble with trouble, to stir up debate, interrupt what we are doing, disturb thinking patterns, and trouble the story in order to change it. Hmm. And I I think that is so true, and I think that is also. Uh, really provocative Um, because I think you know we are taught from the earliest moments in design school uh, that we're to solve problems that we're not Mm -hmm. to respond to trouble with trouble that we're not to complicate to interrupt to debate right Um, right right and so can you talk about like what that looks like I'm not asking you to you know I know you just said you don't like to give people sort of direction but what does that look like to respond to trouble with trouble um, for a for a designer um, that's such a good question. Well, the first thing I'm thinking about is, um, you know, I went back and listened to a few episodes of, of this podcast, just thinking <laughs> about, um, you know, the way that, the way that we're talking about these concepts in general. Um, one of the episodes I listened to was, um, was with Nina Paim, um, oh, yeah. who is yeah. one of the former co-directors of Futures and, um, you know, one of the things that launched Futures was this um, program they did called Troublemakers, mm. and um, I think that's that's an important thing to remember. It's also the idea of like the feminist killjoy, which yeah. um, is a concept explored um, in depth um, by Sarah Ahmed, and I recommend all of her writing. If you want to know how to be a feminist killjoy, she has an actual handbook for you. Um, <laughs> a toolkit? <laughs> she wrote a toolkit? She calls it a handbook. Maybe okay. it's maybe to designers it's a toolkit. Um, but I think that that's, that's an approach that I think is made evident throughout the book um, with examples and, uh, you know, citing moments in history where sometimes being a feminist, yeah, is like, you know, being, maybe being covert about um, your politics, or maybe it's about um, being selective about when and where um, you choose to um, speak up about something. But so much of feminism is just about consistently voicing 
your critique of what's happening. <laughs> mm. um, another mm. thing I, I've heard Nina say um, is that feminism is a full-time job. Yeah. And it's not yeah. something you can put away um, once in a while. It's, it's very much a, a place that you inhabit constantly. Um, and to be sure, it involves navigating a great deal of tension in, um, in different places, such as your work or your classroom. But um, it also, it requires a commitment that is, um, you know, it, it asks a lot of us. Um, I think that full-time job asks a lot of us. Can we talk about that, like specifically yeah. in your full-time job? <laughs> Yeah, you know, I mean, I mean, because I I was reading the book as an educator. You are an educator, and mm-hmm. I was sort of realizing how many of these ideas are central to how I operate in the classroom already, without having that language. You know, um, you know, I don't, um, I don't think I realized how much of my sort of educational philosophy was a feminist educational philosophy, to be mm-hmm. honest, um, until reading the book. And I'm wondering how how this changes your position uh, as an educator or, or your position in the classroom or challenges the hierarchies in the classroom. How do you sort of actually think about this, um, you know, when you are with students in a space together? Mm-hmm. My domain is academia, but I've, I've worked in other places. I have um, awareness of other <laughs> workplaces, but um, currently my, my domain is, is the classroom and the institutions of academia. Um, it's funny, I, you know this, being an educator um, at, a, at a research institution, no less, um, academia is such an easy feminist project. Like, there's just so much to critique. <laughs> yeah. It's so obvious. Um, and yet, it is so, um, it's so hard to make change. It's yeah. so hard to make change. Um, and I think your ability to affect change within that environment is, has a lot to do with, you know, the nature of your institution, the history of your program and the relationships with other people and, and things like that. But I think the classroom is the one place where you can really do what you want to do. Mm. Um, and so it, it's, it's the best type of feminist project I think is, is bringing it to your teaching um, and the ways that you show up as um, as a facilitator and a, an educator in the classroom. Um, there's several examples of this in the book and they're really wonderful ways of thinking about the classroom. And one of them is about um, thinking about design education as a matriarchal project. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's by um, two design educators, Ayako Takase and Heather Snyder Quinn. Um, there's a few other perspectives shared by educators in the book. Um, you know, one of them is a great essay by uh, Becky Nasadowski about um, actual projects she has led within her classroom and how she led those projects in a feminist way, bringing intersectional feminist concepts to her teaching. Um, it's a really, I mean, again, not a toolkit, but like some really yeah, useful yeah. examples of how to apply these concepts. Um, so I think that, that that space is my favorite space to, um, to bring Mm-hmm. Know, my, my feminism too. Um, and I don't write a lot about this in the book, but um, I think of this book as for my students. I, I wrote this book for my students. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been teaching for almost 10 years now. And um, I was a teacher in the you know mid 2010s. I was a teacher <laughs> during the 2016 election. I was a teacher during um, the women's march and me too. And the Dobbs decision, like I've, mm-hmm. my teaching is constantly being shaped by these moments that we are in. Um, but also, you know, I can see my students being shaped by these moments that we're in. And so yeah. many of my students have been demonstrating a real motivation to bring feminism to their design work in different ways. Um, whether it's, you know, taking on feminist issues like reproductive justice or mental health um, by, um, you know, wanting to change the way that they, um, you know, uh, talk about things in their work. Mm-hmm. But I observed something pretty consistently, at least in my students where I've taught. I've taught in two different states and two different regions of the country. And 
um, they were demonstrating that motivation, that passion, but I was not seeing um, a great deal of understanding on their part of the roots of feminist history or, um, Mm. you know, the foundation of feminist theory um, and their ability to connect what they were doing back to what's been done before or back to what others are doing. And I think that's such an important part of feminism is like the way that any feminist act is enmeshed in the, you know, the broader context of of feminism and and the historical context of it. Um, So that's a large part of why I wrote this book the way that I did was because, you know, I wanted it to be fun. I wanted it to be exciting. I wanted it to be just really meaningful, but I also wanted there to be a little bit of like a history and a theory lesson. Yeah. Yeah. Um, like if, if you can't fit feminist theory into your class schedule, like you can read this. Right. Um, and I wanted there to be that, um, I wanted them to gain an understanding of, of how they can think critically about situating their work within feminism within politics within um you know the politics of design within Mm -hmm. um the history within the moment that we're in so um all of those bigger concepts can be brought to you know their their project you know their poster project about mental health or something um and especially the ways that they operate as designers the way that they um you know work with each other as designers there's there's so much of what they're doing that is just kind of like a default way of designing, um, which is rooted in like the traditional ways of doing design, which is rooted in, you know, male centered views that are rooted in Western practices of creativity and design Mm -hmm. and um, all of those things. So being able to situate themselves within that and having the skills to critique what they see, to think critically about what's happening around them. um, But also to have, really, you know, um, a myriad of examples of ways to, again, imagine things otherwise. Um, because this is the, you know, this generation of students, they're, they're the ones who are going to be moving feminism forward. Um, and I really want them to know what they're doing <laughs> when they do it. One of the things that I think about a lot, and this is not really in, in the book, uh, much if at all, now that I recall, um, but something that I think about a lot is is as a as an educator is the critique um, and how how we how we talk about each other's work and I you know I went through a design system where critique was basically there there's good design and bad design and good design is basically like the Swiss modernists yeah same. and then and then how how far you diverge from that is like what the critique is about you know yeah me um, too that was my yeah experience. okay great and and you know for a long time that has not felt sufficient and I have tried to avoid that you know as much as I can but um I, I'm wondering how you think about like what a feminist critique looks like, you know, or how you think about critique in your classrooms to encompass this wide range of ideas that you're talking mm-hmm. about and that your students are bringing, you know, to the table. It's no longer just a formal uh, a formal exercise. There's there's all these layers, and I'm wondering how you do that or how you think about doing that uh, with your students. Yeah, again, it's not. I mean there's so many possible answers to this question. Um, I, I hesitate to, you know, give a specific example. Um, I would say it's more of a thought exercise. So if we're applying that lens of, um, you know, seeing things for what they are and imagining them otherwise, that allows us to, you know, take a look at the traditional critique and understand what's happening there. Um, what's happening there in terms of power, Mm. Um, where is the power in, in that classroom? Um, how is power operating? Um, what is the outcome that power is <laughs> generating? Yeah. Um, but also, you know, thinking about other, other concepts that are really important in this book, like community or plurality, um, how are we understanding, um, you know, the lenses through which we are viewing work, but also the lenses through which we are viewing each other? Um, Mm. and so then that gives you the opportunity to see that, okay, this is not just, you know, the ways that we do design, the ways that we do a critique, they didn't just appear out of thin air. (laughs) They are rooted in, 
um, you know, something. They're rooted in a history of oppression in some way. They're rooted in a, um, you know, a, a traditionalist approach to something. Like there's something to pick apart in everything that you're doing, why it is the way it is, um, why we have always done it the way we've always done it. So if you're able to just think critically about what's happening or what's always been happening, um, I think you can always come up with a way of imagining it otherwise. Um, and I think that's kind of that, um, th that applies anywhere. That applies outside of the classroom too, I think, um, because I want people to understand that they can look at almost anything they're doing and ask the question, is this a feminist issue? Mm. Yes, it almost certainly is a feminist issue, but why? Um, you know, you need to do a little bit of digging, maybe do a little bit of self-reflection, but also dig a little bit into the history or dig a little bit into, um, you know, something else, some, some other cultural con context or component. Um, there's always something to be revealed there. Um, and if it is a feminist issue, um, you know, there's a lot of different ways that you can do something about that. Um, and I think that that's why there's so many examples in the book of different people's perspectives and different people's approaches is yeah. um, there's there's a lot of ways that you can approach the task of imagining otherwise can we talk a little bit about you for a little bit to to wrap up the conversation because okay, sure. <laughs> um, uh, I'm, I'm curious because you studied um, in undergrad you studied graphic design and journalism is that right yes I am a designer and a journalist and <laughs> and we talked we talked before you know before I hit record that you you know you think of yourself as as a writer I'm I'm curious sort of how mm -hmm. that how that double major or sort of studying both of those how they maybe influence how you think about what design is and and what design can do and the work you're doing now Yeah it was very much um a dual pursuit I I got into design through journalism actually mm. Um, mm. I started working at my high school's news magazine um, early on in high school and that's how I arrived at photography that's how I ah, arrived at page nice. design that's how I learned page maker yes yes <laughs> um, <laughs> oh I miss Adobe page maker um, so that was my introduction to design as a vehicle for information for change. But I also loved writing. I always loved um, learning about journalism. And I have my high school journalism teacher to thank for this. Um, he taught me how to be a writer, but he taught me how to be, um, you know, someone who observes, someone who really notices. Um, his, his question most days in the classroom was, how observant are you? Mm. <laughs> and I mm. think I carry that with me every day. Oh, I love um, that. But that, that was my, that was my origin story of design. And so when I was choosing college majors, um, I wanted to do both of those things. I wanted to continue journalism. I wanted to learn more about design. Um, and actually, um, like undergrad, uh, when I was in college, that was my, my first experience in more of the um, I'll say the intertwinement of design and capitalism and the design mm. and design and consumption. Um, I really didn't think about it from those lenses. And so um, my, you know, I never wanted to get into design to like do logos or package design. I was really interested in about the dissemination of information and things uh, like that. Um, so yeah. it was kind of, I think I felt like a little bit of a, <laughs> an oddball. <laughs> in my in my design classrooms but um my dream job was to always um be a designer at a magazine or a news magazine or newspaper um and of course i graduated in 2009 which was <laughs> right. maybe the worst year in the history <laughs> of yeah. all yeah. um uh of journalism of you know it was an incredible yeah. um it was a turning point um, and I'll say this, there were no jobs. So um, I veered away from journalism and into um, the nonprofit sector and um, the uh, public sector. Um, mm. uh, those were the, the jobs that I held after, um, after I got my degrees. And I've always, I've always wanted to be back in journalism, but, um, you know, the precarity of those jobs is just very different than, um, than it used to be. 
you know, that's why, because you went back to school, you got an MFA in experience design in mm-hmm. 2014. Was that, can, can you talk a little bit about like what you wanted from that and why, why you uh, sort of like went deeper into design at that moment in your career? Well, a couple of reasons, um, you know, I think there are a lot of the classic reasons why people go to graduate school is I just wasn't sure what I wanted to do next. Yeah. 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 Um, and I was looking for a way to find out the answer to that. I did always have an interest in teaching. So, um, mm. it felt like, um, you know, a, a simple decision to say like, well, if I want to be a design educator, um, you know, I will start to work on getting the credentials to eventually do that. Um, but I wasn't sure when I was going to do that. Um, so graduate school for me was a way to figure out why I am a designer in the first place. Uh, yeah. Um, and, and I was ready for that, you know, the first year of grad school always takes you by surprise. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, I really, I was very ready for that because, um, I was just a little bit jaded and a little bit tired of, yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> that sounds right. of, you know, the business as usual ways of, of doing design and, and how that worked, especially in a workplace. Um, so, um, yeah, I was, I was really lucky to be in the, the first, um, inaugural class of a new program at a university where I happened to be employed. Um, and mm. I was able to stay employed while doing my, um, my graduate degree. So, um, you know, it's not easy to work full time and go to school, but it, yeah. it was worth it yeah. because, <laughs> um, it really helped me, um, it helped me stay focused, but it also helped me see, um, the impact of what I was learning in an immediate mm. way because I was still working. The reason I ask you about grad school is because you were in grad school at the same time that I was in grad school. I was, I was in grad oh. school 2015 to 17. Mm-hmm. Um, and that era, and you mentioned this already, the 2016 election, sort mm-hmm. of this, um, you know, sort of like <laughs> crisis of democracy, sort of all of these questions. It, being in grad school through all of that was so foundational for mm-hmm. every all the work that I have done since then. Yeah. And I think, you know, not, not to get too meta for a second, but I think like the third episode of this podcast came out the day of the election. <laughs> and like, oh, wow. I, I feel like all, everything that I was doing sort of completely shifted in the, you know, the end of 2016, beginning of 2017. I'm wondering if, I'm wondering if how you've kind of felt about being in grad school at that era and how that has influenced the work that you've done since. I mean, you mentioned, you know, the roots of, of your new book sort of started there. Yeah. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. I was also very deeply shaped by that time, um, in our, in our political history. Um, and it's funny to look back on it in hindsight because, um, you know, if, just think if you could sit in 2016 and know what the next <laughs> seven years would look like, what would you have done? Yeah. yeah. Luckily we only had that moment to grapple with at the time. Um, yeah. But yeah, it, it is deeply interconnected to my work because um, one, I, I share a little anecdote about this in the preface of the book um, it has to do with kind of, you know, why I wrote this book. And one of the short answers is I just, I wrote the book that I needed in that mm-hmm. moment when mm-hmm. I was in graduate school. Um, mm-hmm. And I had a really unfortunate incident with another professor um, who right. um, tried to sabotage a research project that I was doing um, because that is how much he hated Hillary Clinton. And I don't go into details of this in the book. I just kind of hint at it because, um, you know, I'm not interested in, in stirring up any um, ill will towards any individual person. But I remember in that moment thinking, um, there's gotta be something I can do about this. And I didn't know what it was. And Mm. I, and I, I needed something to turn to in that moment of, um, you know, because I was doing research about politics, I was doing research about feminism Mm -hmm. and, um, and I felt so isolated in that moment. Um, and I had, you know, I had good mentors around me. I had, um, supportive students around me, um, my peers, but, um, I did not have, you know, like 
the the feminist guidance that I needed um, to keep, you know, to keep doing my research um, and to not get sidetracked. And so it was just such a, a pivotal moment for me. And I realized that if I want to be a researcher who does things in a feminist way, um, I really need to do a lot of research and knowledge. Like I need to mm, learn mm-hmm. a lot of things about this. And when I went to go digging for it, um, it just wasn't really there. Um, I, I had to piece together things from other disciplines um, mm. to figure out how I could apply it to what I was doing. Um, and, and, you know, again, this is, this is a while ago, this is 2015. Yeah, um, yeah. We, we didn't have future S we didn't have data feminism. We didn't have design justice. We didn't have any of these amazing resources right. that have right. come about in the past few years. Um, you know, what I had was a few academic papers and some books that were like 10 or 20 years old. Um, <laughs> and, the, the place that I started to find what I was looking for was um, in just like the deep foundational roots of feminist theory. And the more I was able to connect that to what I was doing, um, you know, the more sense I could make of what was happening and, and how my work was being operated, but also being received. And so that's what set me on the trajectory for writing this book. Um, but yeah, it was, it is so, I, it's so hard to write a book that is timeless. Like I, I wanted this book to be, <laughs> yeah. I wanted it to be relevant, you know, no matter when you pick it up, but I also, you cannot deny like it is of a moment. It is of a time and place. Yeah. Um, and it's deeply connected to what we're experiencing then and now, which is, you know, the um, intense, intense backlash to the rise of, of feminism since the 2016 election. What's next for you? You just had this book come out. It was a long time coming. Um, <laughs> w- what are you thinking about now? Or like, what, uh, where do you see all this going? Yeah, actually, I have not talked about this. Um, huh. And I don't know when this is coming out, but maybe, um, maybe by the time this podcast airs, um, this will be um, announced publicly. I'm also working on an open source archive um, related to feminist design. Um, and it's very much inspired by, you know, other archives that are, I think, making a really big impact in the field right now, like the People's Graphic Design Archive mm-hmm. and things like that. Um, it's it's a place where anyone can submit anything and it can be their own work or someone else's work um, or just a piece of writing. It could be, it could be literally anything, but it's a, a way for us to start to harness the quality and the quantity of um, of feminist designers. Mm, that's great. Um, and part of me, uh, I'll say the, the reason that I had to do this project was because, um, you know, one of the very first steps of writing this book was I put out an open call for contributors and I received almost 150 contributors <laughs> or wow. submissions to that. Wow. Um, and I was so overwhelmed and I was like, wow, I... Obviously, I'm, I'm, you know, I have to operate within the constraints of a book, which is page limits, um, word counts, things like that. I could not include most of what was submitted. Um, but every single thing that I read in those submissions deserved a platform and it deserves to be shared. And so I just knew that there was like the book was not enough. The book was not enough to mm. document what's happening. It's not enough to document the ways things are changing, or evolving or growing. Um, so I wanted there to be something that was more, um, um, that was more responsive to, uh, to the field of, of design, you know, being done through yeah. a feminist lens. And, um, so that's what I'm working on right now. I'm working on it with a, a wonderful web developer, um, and we're hoping to launch it in the spring semester, which is anywhere between January and (laughs) May for me, but, um, uh, but yeah, but that's next, um, on my agenda. Um, and from there, I just want to, um, I just want to continue to find ways to share and give platform to the amazing people, um, who are doing work Mm -hmm. like this and the incredibly thoughtful, um, and innovative work that they're doing. I think that is a nice way to wrap up. So I'm going to ask you the question that I used to end all of these. I'm curious what you're reading right now. Yeah. Well, as we talked about, um, I've been on maternity leave for a semester. Um, so um, I love to read. I 
do a lot of reading, but when you have a three month old, it's not something (laughs) that (laughs) you have a lot of time for. Um, But uh, something that I just picked up and started reading um, is a book called Conflict is Not Abuse. Mm. Um, uh, The subtitle is Overstating Harm, Community Responsibility and the Duty of Repair. And that's written by Sarah Shulman. Um, And it's, it's something I picked up because I've been thinking a lot about how we um, how we do community and how mm. we um, work through difference within communities. Um, and this is touched on really briefly in the book. Um, I could not give enough pages to you know to all of this um, this concept, which is so critical to the ways that we work with each other. But um, I've been thinking a lot about lately. Um, the, the ways that we affect change, the ways that we bring about change Mm. and how that necessarily involves conflict, um, and the ways that conflict is not a bad thing, um, but how we can be productive in the ways that we do conflict. So I'm really excited to read this, um, you know, and (laughs) maybe it'll take me a while (laughs) (laughs) with a baby at home, but, um, uh, yeah, that's what I'm reading right now. I, yeah, I love that. Uh, your book is called Feminist Designer on the Personal and the Political in Design. I loved the book so much. I found it so, so helpful for me. Allie, this was such a great conversation. I'm glad we got to do this. Thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you, Jared. This was really wonderful. And that was my conversation with Allison Place. Our theme music is by Jeremiah Chu. The show is and always will be free. Thanks to the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you like what we're doing here, I hope you consider supporting us and get some bonus content each month. You can follow us across social media at Surface Podcast. You can listen to all of our previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts and at our website, scratchingthesurface.fm. Thanks for listening.